check out the menu. It's the set lunch with me, Reza Pasha. It's the set lunch with me, Razif Hashim, and it is that time again to serve the main course. Dishing out insightful interviews with some of the leading players in the FNB industry. Today we're talking about FNB design. Um, together with us is Ramesh Session of Session Design, founder. Um, thanks for being with us today. Thank you. Alrighty. So, um, Ramesh, we always start the day by talking about you. You know, um, always <laughs> okay. about the entrepreneur. Tell us a little bit about your journey um, and when you started. You decided to start your own thing, and and you know what were you doing before that, and um, what made you take that leap of starting uh, to become your entrepreneur. Actually, I didn't. Everything happened to me today is totally by accident. Okay. Okay. Interesting. <laughs> uh, even from I, I'm actually an architecture graduate. Uh, even that whole step into architecture wasn't intentional either. Uh, my dream back in school. You know, in school. Uh, teachers always ask you to fill out what would you like to be. I wanted to be a math scientist, so my first line was probably geneticist, bioengineer, biotechnologist, and something like that. And at the bottom, I put there, uh, okay, la, doctor. Doctor. That's, that's about it, lah. So, uh, architecture was never, or anything related to arts, was never even a consideration back then. But right. I used to enjoy doing stuff, making models, Lego, and all that kind of stuff. I grew up with Lego, building stuff. So to me, that was always a hobby. It's not something I ever. Considered as uh, being a career or anything like that. Do you did you even know when you were in school that you know that science was to make money? Did you even know what it no, composed? I wanted to create my own dragon. I wanted to oh. be a geneticist and pretty you know macaron and this was way before Jurassic Park came on right, all that kind of stuff. Right. It's like shit, man! I want to I want to build my own. I want to create my own life forms and so that was basically what I wanted to do back in high school. Okay, so that was the dream. Uh, so in the end, what happened was. Um, uh, so of course, as far as parents go, family family goes like medicine. That's the way to go. So I actually got the Asin scholarship. I was actually in Singapore, uh, but that time when I graduated, that was back in '92. Uh, I think that's when the, our Malaysian government has stopped sending out uh, scholarships overseas. So I think my brother back then just told me, "You not sure what you're going to get. You just try to apply to anything anyway." And he came. One, he came to me one day. Had a prospectus for UTM. And, he, and I looked through it and said, hey, architecture, that sounds quite easy. All you have to do is just build models, right? So I just applied, whacked it in, you know. So but I got that scholarship. I went to Singapore. I didn't think much about architecture or whatever stuff. Uh, then when I remember one day, then I think the results for the UTM local universities came out and I didn't get it. So I thought, what the heck, you know. But my brother was adamant. He says, no, 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 because my results were quite good back then. He says, must be a mistake. You go and appeal. So he did all the letters, everything. I just signed it and says, okay, fine, whatever. So I just continued. I went to Singapore, continued my A-levels. And then uh, one day I got a call from my mom. I was in, uh, was, I, was in ho- I was staying in a hostel in Singapore. We were studying for a common test. In Singapore, that's why Singaporeans always do well. You see, they have tests every week, every month. So, so how do you not do well? So we were studying right. for an exam, right. bio exam. I remember that day, and I got a call uh, from the hostel. Said, "Hey, you got a mom's on, on." I mean, they called the hostel. So obviously back then, no handphones. So I went down. And my mom said they got a telegram from UTM. I was um, offered a second intake for architecture. So that was the groundbreaking decision. Do I study for my bio test the next day or do I go to UTM Johor and apply for architecture? I went to apply to architecture the next day. So next day, I just took a box across, went to Singapore. I went to JB, signed in, and 
I ended doing architecture. Uh, six years, six, seven years of hell. No, actually it wasn't hell. I mean, back then, I suppose things were a bit different for us, not like millennials today. It's like, what do you dream? What do you want to do? For us, I think back then was, we got something, let's see how, how best we can make it. So when I did architecture, I mean, for me, it was a culture shock because I grew up in PJ. I went to Singapore and then ended up in Skudai. And Skudai, 20 over years ago, it's not, not what Skudai it is. today, yeah, exactly. It's not what it is today. So it was a culture shock for me. It was middle of nowhere. So we thought just make the best of it. I started doing funny stuff, doing weird projects, you know. And yeah, I suppose I made a meaning for myself. Even in school, all the lecturers knew me for the one, the one crazy kid doing all the crazy projects. So when I came out to work, uh, I worked in this one firm, Unit 1 Design, for many years. Um, and then it was in the, actually in that office where... Uh, because my ex-bosses were actually from, uh, they actually, uh, they were actually, they actually studied and uh, practiced in London before they came back to KL, before they came back to Malaysia. And the thing about British architects is in Britain, in UK, it's not like Malaysia because Malaysia we've got so much land. UK is hardly anything. So a lot of the architects there also did small projects, F&B, restaurants, retail, and all those kind of things. So when 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 they came back to Malaysia, and I joined them. And when I joined them, it was just before the recession. This was uh, 97. I joined them in late 97. 98 was when the kind of crash happened. And uh, when we were in that office, the other thing that happened was KLCC opened up. Surya KLCC opened up in May 1998. I remember then. And that was where we lost all our big projects, but we started doing a lot of small interior restaurants and stuff. So it was in that office. Right. And at this point in time, were you, you were with another firm? Or were I, was, you... I was working. This, this is the first firm I worked with. All right. So I was still a, you know, just fresh grad working with them. And that's where my experience into... FMB retail and all that, I mean, interiors, architecture and all that came about. Lah. And I was with this firm for about nine years, you know. And uh, I left them after nine years and uh, thinking to maybe um, go abroad. You know, I wanted to work, but I was still single back then, no commitments. So was, my life was basically my work. I was one of those crazy people who just, I didn't fall sick. I, usually, I, I fall sick average once a year. I don't take leave and all that kind of stuff. So basically, I thought, hey, maybe we should, I should join an international firm, do work overseas. So back then, I remember when I left and I resigned, I was looking for a job. And my friends in Lim Kok Wing called me up and they're saying, hey, because I used to, I was a senior architect in my previous office and I used to, used to be the one to interview all the potential graduates and I used to complain, hey, Lim Kok Wing graduates are rubbish. Scratch that out. Uh, <laughs> no, no, it's... <laughs> The, the truth will set you free. <laughs> so so my friends who were there, who were actually the department heads there, said, hey, you know, since you're always complaining about Lincoln Wing students not being good, why don't you come and do something about it? So I thought, okay, fine. So I, I joined Lincoln Wing as a lecturer. I was there for one and a half years. So while I was there, uh, okay, Lincoln Wing, all said and done, there is something they did, they have there, which is actually a concept they have there, which is actually very, very good. It's something they call uh, industry, industry plus university. They actually want their students to get involved with life projects as part of their course activity. So I came in straight from industry. So they said, hey, you got working experience. I did both architecture and interior. So they put me in charge of the industry head for the uh, faculty of architecture and built environment. So, and the thing is, Lincoln Wing being the advertising school, it advertised out to people. I didn't know about this, you know. It actually advertised itself to say like, hey, you want designs done? Come and hire our students. So, and actually someone, and people actually do come to them. So, one day, uh, the school called me and said, hey, we got one potential client. They, she wants to do a small little spa kind of thing in KL. So they told me to round up a few students. We did the competition. Uh, she gave a prize. It was a small little spa place in somewhere in Ampang. Uh, Mew and I, actually, actually quite well known apparently now. Uh, so we did that competition. Students did it, got it done. And she gave the prize. But at the same time, that wasn't it because the client still needed to build it. And she was Malaysian, but she just came back from Australia, didn't know anyone. So I kind of took pity on her and I said, tell you what, I'll do this for you pro bono. Because I was lecturing full-time, but I kind of missed practice. So I got my old regular contractors. I did the drawings for her and I actually 
did the whole place for her pro bono. And during that time, was then I was dating my then wife, and um, it's all related. Uh, so yeah, yeah, yeah. No, this is great. This is so, great. Uh, so what happened back then is, and you know about Malaysians, I mean Asians in general, I mean, we started dating her, and then of course, uh, she's my best friend's younger sister. So because I've known her since she was a small kid, but of course nothing happened back then. Uh, so we finally decided to get married. But the thing about us Asians is, our weddings are never our weddings. It's always our parents', parents wedding. wedding. So yeah. we thought... Cannot because both of us have you know relatives on both sides. We don't want to invite our wedding, but how do we do it? So we thought only way for it to happen is let's do a destination wedding. So we thought Thailand sounds a bit dodgy, right? Tell people to go marry in Thailand. So we thought okay, let's Bali. So we thought okay, Bali is quite cool, but no money. Mm. So I started scratching my head. So at this time when I finished this first project on my own, uh, suddenly it just hit me like hey, maybe I can do projects on the side to earn money. For wedding, maybe I can set up a wedding fund. And somehow, just at that moment, I got a call from... Actually, this is a firm I actually went to interview for, for a job before I went to Lincoln Wing. And this guy didn't accept me. Suddenly, he calls me and says, Hey, would you like to do a, a rental job for my one of my clients? And I was like, hang on a minute. I went to you for an interview. You didn't give me a job. And now you're calling me to ask whether I want to do your friend's house and what's the catch? He says, no catch. It uh, was, a, was a project I worked on in my previous office that the client, his friend liked. So he thought, okay, la, so I did it. So I did his, I did, I went to see the client and I told him I'm working full-time. I'm lecturing full-time. But I'm also setting up a wedding fund. I charge very little. So, but if you don't mind me doing it part-time and you can contribute to my wedding fund, I'll be more than happy to do your reno. And next thing you know, word of mouth, his friends, his cousin, his friends started coming and I started getting jobs and jobs and jobs and jobs and jobs and it just... I was like, okay. And at that time also, I was getting a bit irritated somewhat with Lincoln Wing. Yeah. So I thought, hey, maybe I can do this full-time. Yep. So I, I, from full-time lecturing, I went into part-time lecturing two days a week and I concentrated on my uh, one-man show. So I, that's when Session Design Enterprise started. Right. It was basically a company set up to collect wedding, my wedding fund. <laughs> okay? right, right. So that's how actually Session Design started. It was actually a means to pay for my wedding. So I got, finally got married in 2008. Uh, and the money was actually yeah was actually quite good, <laughs> you know. And after the wedding, I decided I'll resign completely, and I thought I'll do it full time as a one man show. Right. And so that's exactly as essentially how Station Design started. Tell us a little bit about how you started with designing restaurants. Okay, uh, I suppose the story starts back in my previous office in back in Unit One. So in Unit One, uh, where I was where I was with them for nine years, uh, from ninety seven to about two thousand seven, almost actually almost yeah nine and a half ten years. Uh, so. In that office, we actually that's where my first exposure to all these really cool restaurants like the Alexis restaurant, San Francisco Coffee, and many more. Uh, so that kind of like, and I and those were the projects I was actually involved with uh, directly. So when I came on my own, I was like one man show. So when I was at a one man show, you can't really do restaurants. I didn't really do my lot of restaurants because restaurants are very I call it resource heavy projects because when the when you get a restaurant job, you have to work on it almost immediately because everything it goes back to finances. When you get a lot in a shopping mall or a freezer, there's usually a rental attached to it. And usually the clients want to open as soon as possible. They don't want to pay rental. They want to get into the rental-free period and get going. So when I was at One Man Show, actually, I didn't do any restaurants. Now, the restaurants started coming about when I actually set up an office. I started having one or two staff. And um, I did do one or two for existing clients, but the most, I suppose, uh, prominent 
restaurant I did on my own. The first one was actually Chinos on the Park in KLCC. Okay. Now, Chinos on the Park actually has been in KLCC from the very beginning, yes. way back in, I think, 98. They were there since 98, you know. And uh, that was, I think, done by the previous uh, architect, uh, previous designer, I think, uh, Access Network. And uh, I think it was another Singaporean, uh, Australian architect based in Singapore. So what happened was, uh, we were doing a lot of work. I've done a lot of work in KLCC while I was in Unit 1. And uh, when I came out on my own, I think the the retail consultants in KLCC still knew me and they knew I was on my own. So I think Chinos, first time, they wanted to do some extension on the, on the external seating. So they actually asked KLCC, can you recommend someone to me? So they actually recommended me. Uh, owner come see me. But I think that time I was busy with a lot of other work and Chinos was a big name. And he wanted, and he told me he wanted it committed in two months. I couldn't commit. So I told him, I'm really sorry. I have to turn you down because I didn't want to take on something which I couldn't do. So that was it. But a year later... Suddenly, he came back to me again. I got a call from him again. And this time, what happened was, uh, there was a small accident in Chinos. The, the, the pizza oven caught fire. So, okay. part, of, uh, part of Chinos got damaged. You know? So, he was saying, hey, since we've already have to redo it, and it's time for them to redo the whole thing, would I be willing to look at the place again? And that time, I had actually uh, just set up my own office on my own. I had two staff with me. I had a, quite a lot of jobs on, in line. And that was where I was in a dilemma. Can't say no to this guy. This is Chinos, you know. But if I say yes to him, I probably won't be able to do it. So what I did, I, I made the decision was I started to turn down all my existing jobs at that moment, and told my guys, we are just focusing on this. And uh, because the shop closed down, because the shop had to be closed down because of the fire, and every time they closed, you know, the yeah, rental yeah, still the runs. Rental still runs. runs yeah. So basically, we had to turn it around in five weeks. So that means design and rebuild the whole place within five weeks. So it was really one of those you know, no sleep for weeks, uh, for days and all that kind of thing. And we did it. Uh, and then, so at that time when Chinos came to me and uh, clients came to me and they asked, and the idea of course was the look. Because at that time, Chinos, I think, had been renovated about two or three times before that. And they didn't have a real identity or look. I mean, kept changing each time we did. And at that point of time, I remember uh, Acme in Troika just opened up. Mm-hmm. And it was fantastic. Because, and also because a lot of friends called me. I, I heard about it because a few friends called me and said, hey, Acme in Troika, did you design it? I'm like, no. Okay, so I quickly ran there, looked at it. It was freaking awesome. I was actually very upset because it wasn't designed by me. It was designed by Q&A, uh, Ryan Quirk. So, but it was really cool. And it, but it was also one of the, it was also kind of following the trend back then. I think uh, even now actually still going on, you know, everyone's going for this raw industrial kind of thing, a lot of steel and stuff like that. So, uh, I spoke to the clients at Chinos and said, I don't know what I want to do, but I know what I don't want to do. Let's right. not do that. Because I think that's, I mean, although Acme did it very well, but I didn't want to go that way because then, you know, people start to associate Everyone's going industrial and stuff. So I told the client, let's go the other direction. Let's go something retro. Let's go very classic, you know, very old school European kind of thing. And that's when the client said, okay. So we started looking at images of uh, examples of mood boards of restaurants in Paris and Europe and all that kind of stuff. And we came up with a very, uh, I wouldn't say Parisian, but the reason I'm using the word Parisian is because that's what the feedback came back. I've never been to Paris. Right. But uh, but it's the first thing when we build the project, everyone's like, "Wow, this looks like something you know, quite cool." So like, looks very Parisian. I'm like, "Okay, if you guys say so, if it works." But uh, so we we managed to turn it around, and uh, I remember we, I mean, my, my staff were telling me like, "Shit, you no, know, they were almost like vomiting blood trying to finish up the job, getting on time." But when the job finished and we walked in, and like, "Damn, this doesn't feel like we're in KL anymore." It yeah. looks really felt like we were somewhere else, and I think that's actually one of the things that leads on to design. Uh, and I think that's what I try to strive for when we're doing restaurants. We try to make sure that something that looks like it doesn't belong in Malaysia, like it's transported somewhere else. And I think that one we achieve, we hit the nail on the on the on the head. And when Chinos opened up, 
amazing. It was almost full house. Everyone came and it, it and the reactions it got. Actually, Chinos was the job that actually got me all my other F&B jobs after that. I started getting calls left, right, and center from clients saying, shit, how do you do that? You know, of course, you also get the the naysayers saying, yeah, you could do it well because you spent so much money on it. Then I told them, actually, no, we didn't actually spend a lot of money on it. Actually, the budget was actually quite low. And uh, this way we were discussing earlier where that's the difference between, I suppose, an interior designer's approach and for me, I, I, tr- I treat myself as almost architecture trained. We're a bit more pragmatic in a sense. So a lot of interior designers have come, I'm not saying everyone, but a lot of them I come across with, especially the foreign interior designers practicing in this country. They like to sell expensive materials, one-off materials, like, oh, you can only get this marble from so-and-so country, you're the only ones having it. So they force the clients, to, to them, good design is expensive materials. But then when you look at Chinos, a lot of the materials, if you look closely at it, a lot of materials actually was really, really inexpensive stuff. It was just normal nyato uh, ply that we just stained. But what we spent on was the articulation, the workmanship and so forth. I mean, we had a few pieces of nice marble here and there. But generally, it was how we planned the whole space together, the details and stuff. And that's where the pressure came in. So, of course, the overall impression was fantastic. But actually, if you look at the amount of cost, and I mean, it was, I mean, it's not cheap because it was large. But a lot of people thought I spent more than double of what we actually did. A lot of right. designers thought we did that. And I think that was actually quite cool. And, and, and when clients found out that uh, new clients came to me and started talking to me about costs and they found out that actually I did it like half of what they imagined. They're like, oh my God, come and do my restaurant. And yeah, that's right. when my other clients started coming in, you know. And uh, even KLCC themselves started calling me as well. They were like, they were so impressed by it. They started, they started to ask, throw me jobs from, hey, let's go and do something for us in Alamanda and here and that. So, I mean, I turned most of it down because at the time I was too bad. Too bad. But it, it kind of made that big an impression, you know. And uh, one of the one of the issues, so just a side issue, one of the issues uh, the client brought up, so when we, when we first saw the 3Ds coming up, they were also worried. Are we making it a bit look too atas, too <laughs> expensive, right. you know? Because And I was thinking, you are chinos. Your food, first of all, it's already at that price range and you're worried that I'm making it look even more expensive. I say, I don't think that's an issue, man. So, I mean, but as I say, a question I get from a lot of uh, my, my new clients as well, they're always worried that we're making it look too inaccessible to them. And I said, it's okay. I think, I think as a general rule, most customers would be happy to enter a place and dine in a place that actually looks well done and expensive even. But I feel that as long as the place is, looks very accessible, very approachable, people will want to go in. I mean, who wouldn't, right? Absolutely. <laughs> you know? What is your take on what makes a restaurant someone's favourite? What what elements of design do you put in, um, you know, in, in all of your product pro, uh, projects for people to enjoy? Okay. Uh, okay, now, now that's a very, that's a loaded question actually. Uh, a lot of times, I mean, first impression, people always assume that people go to a restaurant and become favourite restaurant because the food is awesome. Unfortunately, as, you, as I'm sure all of us know, that's not always the case. Um, I'm not sure whether Malaysians' standard of uh, food is not... But I, think, but I think Malaysians love food. But the thing is, Malaysians love street food. Yeah. So I think when it comes to street food, they will only go to the best. But when it comes to the slightly more posh restaurants and cafes and restaurants, I mean, and uh, the, the more upmarket ones, I think this is where... Uh, the quality of food seems to not matter as much because I personally feel Malaysians are a pretentious lot. Okay, uh, we want we from what it seems, uh, I mean, the new generation, the millennials, or whatever they want to call themselves, or whatever we want to call them, they seem to go to places that are hip and look cool, very Instagrammable. Um, yes, Malaysians are a pretentious lot. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, I can't can't state any names, but I'm sure we all know a few big name brands where uh, service isn't exactly that great. Uh, food is a bit so-so lacking, but it's strong. It's always full with people taking photos of each other because it's a cool place to hang out. And 
like it or not, that's the reali- reality. And uh, a lot of times when we're designing restaurants, I'm actually we actually have to design or we have to, we have to acknowledge that fact and we got to design around it. Uh, so we've actually had clients coming to us and uh, some in some in some projects we actually are given a free hand that we can actually help out with the branding or direction or what the restaurant should like. We got we get a lot of clients. We got two types of clients. One some are clients with our existing restaurants which we improve from them. And we've also got a lot of clients where they're coming to us for the first time and they want to create something extremely new. And what we've realized is uh, if the end users, the customers think that the restaurants are not local, it usually tends to do better. I'm not talking about street food, I'm talking about the, the slightly atas food, yeah, the, atas, the, the cafe and so forth, you know. Uh, w- w- one example, I suppose, is, uh, I, let, let's say Dottie's. Okay, Dottie's was uh, uh, one of the early, one of the more recent restaurants that came out. It's a brand new franchise. It's, a brand, it's not a franchise, it's, it's created by a local Malaysian company. So when they came to us with the idea of you know, doing something, so at first they thought about, let's do something a bit local and stuff. And I told them, actually, no, let's not. Let's do something. Because I, I, I said the exact same things to the client. Malaysians are pretentious, you know, so they need to look at some, and some, and some of you are selling breads, pastries and stuff. It's not a Malaysian product. It's actually very European, you know, very Western kind of culture kind of thing. So I think the place has to look like that. So, and and again, today, the a lot of kids, and I know when they go out, they like to take photos of themselves, cool places and stuff. So that's why the level of design in restaurants have to change. So we need to give them something very pretty, you know. So we started looking, so we came up with ideas of something that looks very European and stuff, and that's how Dottis came about. So the, we, we had almost a free hand in the branding, the look, the feel, the materials, the details. And I think, it worked, you know. If you go look at Dottie's now and Tamantun and stuff, it's it's full packed, of people, packed. It's packed with people coming and people out there taking photos of themselves and stuff. And I've, if you just through Instagram, you just put put a geolocation on. I'm like, my God, you know, everyone's taking there, and they're not really, some of them are not even there to buy food, you know. They so just, just, just there take photos, you know. And actually, that works, you know. Uh, another classic example is uh, Huckleberry. Right. Uh, in Maiden Damansara. Okay, that's another family-run. Uh, it's a, I mean, the family-run business. Uh, that. And that's another interesting, interesting thing about clients. A lot of our clients are so well-traveled, so they've traveled the world. So the Huckleberry clients, uh, it's a family-run business, uh, good and bad, because we have to deal with so many parties, the mother, the father, the daughter, the brother, and all that stuff. But the good thing about them is they've traveled a lot. So they went to New York, they went to Paris and everything. So we, And they've always wanted to do a, a patisserie, pastry, restaurant kind of thingy. So when I first sat down with them, they were actually uh, repeat clients of mine. We did, house, we did a lot of projects with them before. So when they came to us and they had images and stuff from New York, from Paris, all the top restaurants and patisseries in Paris. And the, I think, I think uh, our uh, challenge was to how to knit everything together. And I think that's one thing we are actually very good at. I mean, a lot of people think this, hey, just take from a picture and we just copy it. It's just not as easy to emulate or copy something. I mean, we've seen, I've seen a lot of uh, attempts by other people elsewhere. They, I know what they were trying to do and they just feel miserably about it. Because when you want to take something, copy or emulate something, before you can do that, you need to understand what is it about that place you want to copy or emulate that actually works. You need to understand that and then, then you know how to take it and uh, adapt it to your own use. Because when you copy something, what you look at might not be exactly the same, different size, different uh, is a different climate altogether. So you need to understand what what about it, different proportions. You know, a lot, and I feel a lot of designers nowadays they don't quite understand that the proportions, all that. So we need so I think that's where we actually come in very well. We know how to take extract what works and put it together. We can take uh, we can take ideas from six to seven different <laughs> uh, sources and we can merge it together into one almost seamless piece that looks almost unique. Like, you know? I mean, a lot of people accuse me like, hey, but you're not coming out anything new. But hey, 
I don't think anything's original anymore. No? Everything comes from somewhere. It's how we put things together, how Truth. we adapt, modify, and then we carry on something totally new. And a lot of times, the ideas that came... And Akhabar is actually quite interesting because what went into there was a whole series of different ideas, arguments, uh, conversations we had. They say, hey, this looks cool. And a lot of times, it's like something like, client sees something. Hey, Ramesh, look at this. And I look at it and say, hey, that's cool. Let's do it. How do we do it? I don't know. Just let's do it. And then we'll try to crack our heads, figure it out, and then we just put it together and it kind of works. And uh, and when Huckleberry came about, I mean, it was, it was almost a nightmare job in a sense. A good nightmare job because, I mean, the end product's fantastic, but the process was crazy because we had so many things we are trying to do. We had materials from all over the place, styles from Singapore, ceiling panels from... Uh, from Australia, we were trying to figure out the client saw one uh, stalactite formation in a r- authentic old building in New York and told me to emulate it. I'm like wondering, like, how the hell do we do that? You know, but I think the end product was fantastic. I mean, we had ideas of external parts, some shops from we had some outlets from New York, uh, uh, cafes and patisseries from Paris. But when the place opened up, uh, this is why I thought it was the, the 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 best thing of all. You know, because in Damansara Heights, there's a lot of expats live there. And uh, some of the expats are also some of my clients, uh, especially a uh, few French expats. And not one, but many of them have come and told me when they walk into Huckleberry, it really feels like an authentic Parisian restaurant. And again, I've never been to Paris. So, I'm like, so Huckleberry ends up Paris. Is that is that it? That's what I said, and then quite a number of them. And, I, and recently, about a year or so later, there was there was one uh, there was one uh, Paris uh, Paris French uh, entrepreneur who came to Malaysia. and He wanted to open cafes and stuff. Now he contacted me also because he came to Huckleberry, and I mentioned this to him, and he looked at me and he said exactly because he does French cafes, uh, Parisian cafes, and he told me yes, actually it does feel like something straight out of Paris. And I'm like, okay, so we did something right, <laughs> although that wasn't our main intention. But yeah, exactly. Heck, I mean, you know? like, isn't Huckleberry American? Uh, it, that's the funny part. We actually started off with a very no. The name is it? No, no. I mean Huckleberry. I'm talking about. Uh, I'm talking about the cuisine. Okay. Ah. So the the that's where that's that's, that's that's I think this is the part the Malaysian part comes in. This part is very unique. So Huckleberry has uh, it's a different character. So if you look at the lot, what's happening there? He has Huckleberry is at the corner. So that's the cafe. The next to it is actually the the common bakery. It's actually a, uh, it's actually the central bakery. So they actually got a. They actually had when they first set up. They actually got a French uh, master baker and everything. They did all the breads. They do everything on their own. They spent a lot of money they actually, and on the equipment and everything there is authentic. Nothing is bought. They actually produce everything themselves. So that's the bakery. But actually, the pastries don't come from there. They've got another location where they've got another pastry chef, another pastry kitchen. They've got another French pastry chef there also coming for the pastry. So basically, the cafe started off in the morning was basically a cafe, a proper hot food cafe kind of thing. And, but the thing is, when, the, when it opened up and the business did so well, they realised that a lot of people wanted proper hot food, but the kitchen we had was so small. Mm-hmm. So they took the lot upstairs. So they took a lot upstairs that we did. They took about one third of the lot upstairs and they basically... Um, Pushed the whole kitchen upstairs so they had a larger kitchen with a dumb waiter so they can serve. But once they took the lot upstairs, it's like, okay, what do you do with the front of it? That's how Skaldagri came about. <laughs> it's right. a, it's, so Skaldagri is a separate business, although it's linked to the same company and stuff, but actually Skaldagri is like another really cool, chill bar and stuff like that. But it actually be- was because we had that space and we like, okay, what do we do with it? So thought, let's do another business called Bar. So, so basically, and then from day one, the plan was. Um, Huckleberry to always have a Jekyll and Hyde kind of thing. So the daytime is cafe, at night is supposed to be a cocktail. Supposed to be a cocktail bar. So when Huckleberry came about, okay, we've already got a bar. So what do you do downstairs? So they decided to change the outlook. So at in the evenings, it's very 
American street food, Tex-Mex kind of thing with the tacos and all that stuff. So I think that's why some people think it's it's got that whole American thing coming through, you know. So it was just, it was more to do with the, I think with the kind of cuisine they were trying to do, kind of make. But it's quite interesting. So they have Huckleberry. They have Huckleberry After Dark, which is actually downstairs after four, after six, which basically uh, sells the American street food kind of thing. That makes more sense. And then, uh, then of course, the bar is actually upstairs at Skaldagrila. I see, I see. But it's kind of unique because, and all this is all packed in that 1,500 square feet space downstairs. So it's got so much detail, so many things going on. And I think, and I think that's the part that, that, that's the part why it works. It's very rich. It's got so many materials, so many details, so many little bits of character. And I think that's what uh, a lot of the newer, what's that we're trying to sell a lot of new restaurants. I think people nowadays, I mean, those days back in the 80s, you know, everyone's going to this really clean, chic, fine, modern stuff. I think people are moving away from that. They actually want character. And that's why I think there's a lot of uh, uh, move towards something retro. Because when you go something retro, you see things, there's nostalgia. You look, hey, I remember that. Hey, this looks like something I saw in this country. Hey, this, you know, you see a lot of restaurants now, they're having this old enamel, your pots and pans that we used to grow up with. So there's always, that, I think there's this, there's this uh, drive towards things that people remember, nostalgia, things retro, anything with character. And Huckleberry, I think, is successful in that sense because it has, I mean, food is, the, bakery, the breads are fantastic, pastries are fantastic, but the place has got so much character. It's like every part, segment you look at, there's something new to look at. I mean, if you go Huckleberry, you put the Joe's pictures on Instagram, it's like amazing. It's like every inch of that cafe has been photographed it is it is very very um yeah very photogenic space Mm. very rich and and everything what is it that you feel we shouldn't be doing when it comes (laughs) to design in the fnb uh industry okay my number one pet peeve about any restaurant or cafe are actually the tables and chairs because the worst thing that can happen is you know you go to a restaurant and you sit in the chair it looks chair looks so comfortable when you sit in and suddenly whoop the level is totally off you know, you start sinks really in and the table so high you can't even eat. I'm like, I can't stand that. The reason why I can't stand it is because there is actually a standard. There's actually a standard you can find from any design guidebook or stuff on what height of a it's not about the height of table and chair. It's about the difference of height between the surface of the table and the seat of the chair. Generally, it's about 12 inches, uh, 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 about foot, about 300, plus minus one or two inches. That is the it's actually the re, the difference. So your chair can be a table, table can be high, but the chair has to come up soon. But what happens to a lot of restaurants and cafes, and some of them are even quite well-known players. I think they go about just think, hey, is this a chair? So they just go and buy any chair they want at a certain price and they just say, let's get a table. They just go to any specialist uh, furniture manufacturer and they just get whatever standard they have. And sometimes the difference, it's off by only about 10 or 20 millimetres, uh, th- one or two centimetres, but it can it make all that difference. much difference. I mean, you, I'm sure a lot of you have come and said there are a lot of places that have these nice, large banquet seats, but the cushion is so soft. So when you sit on it, you just sink in and then the table is suddenly so high up and you're like, okay, I can't eat. I mean, I've seen a lot of people that just force themselves to eat, but for me, I can't stand it. Okay. So so that's why I always tend not to sit on the banquets or or like one recently I went to a new restaurant. I went in, it was a nice cool restaurant. The food I know was look it looked good, looked delicious, but I made a big hoo-ha there until the staff managed to move my chairs around and got me a chair that I was actually comfortable sitting in. I mean I was a bit of an I don't think I was a bit of an ass, but you know, those are things I really cannot stand. You know? Okay, okay, that's cool. So um what yeah, what else is it? Is it? Uh, okay, so okay, so coming on chairs and tables, the the other thing about restaurants, I suppose if you if you fall back into design, um like I said, uh the kind of chair, so this is about heights, okay? But even the type of chairs and tables actually makes a difference. Like, for example, if you go to a restaurant, table sizes, let's look at the table sizes. Table sizes is very much dependent on the kind of food you serve. I mean, 
if you if you go to a restaurant where the servings are all large, huge plates, but they give you some small, minute, <laughs> little cafe table that's two feet by two feet, that's not going to work. You know, you come and promote a share. It's so uncomfortable. And uh, I I have a I have a young family, so when I go out, I tell travel with my kids. And I think a lot of restaurants now are they forget that actually a lot of the customers actually come with kids, so the tables are not designed large enough. You can't put the kids on it. And even the table legs. You know, nowadays you've seen some tables where they've got this really huge, solid, flat plate at the base. Uh, steel paste and stuff. And it looks quite cool. looks quite simple. But for me now, I'm realising with a kid, I've got a baby chair. I can't bring the baby chair close to the table because it long, it, it, it knocks against the, 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 the base of the base of the leg. The so those are little things that I think a lot of the designers don't realise, you know. And these are the... And for me as an end user, there are times where I don't want to go to those restaurants <laughs> because the tables are designed such a way. And uh, so table sizes depends on your food and stuff like that. And also, uh, when you let's go back to designing. So for example, if a, a client's designing a restaurant and stuff like that, you, you must also understand the, the basic general demographics because what kind of people sit there? Like for example, if the office, if the restaurant is near an office and office crowds usually come in groups of, you know, four, six, eight, twelve, and then usually like to have a large communal table and start joining tables together. But, if your tables are predominantly round and you start to join them together, that's, that's not the most comfortable arrangement of tables Absolutely. to actually work with. Absolutely, it's worse. I really hate that. So, so when I when I so when we design clients, that we, we do a lot of chains. For example, like Nando's, Sanvis Coffee, and stuff like that. So when we're designing it, we also ask because it, because these cafes, although the design is the same, it's the same brand, but they are in various different locations. Some of them are in schools, some of them are near uh, high street stores, some of them are in your offices. So we need to understand what is the demographics of the people there. What kind? How do they come down? Do they come in pairs? Are they normally singles? Do they come as a group? You know the date because that's also a problem because it all it goes goes back to business sense and I think this is where a lot of uh, restaurant designers forget about this. You know they all think owning a restaurant is cool and hip. I mean, hey, it was my dream at one point. I must say at one point to own my own restaurant. But because I've done so many restaurants and I see what my clients have to go through, the kind of shit they have to go through the first way, I'm thinking to myself, I told my wife, you know what? Let's leave it to them. We'll just go there and enjoy sitting in. Because end of the day, what is, why do people open restaurants? I mean, some of them do it for passion if they've got a shitload of money, you know, kind of stuff, you know. But the main thing is they're doing it for business. So end of the day, the restaurant is a business. So in order for it to be, for business to work, you need to have customers. Customers need to come in. Customers need to spend money. But in order for customers to spend money, they need to come into your restaurant. Mm. So that's actually the main, so when we start designing a restaurant, uh, it's not about look and feel. Although the earlier conversations we had was all about look and feel and details, but actually that is the secondary part. When we design a restaurant, that's not the first thing we talk about. The science science can bring it up, but to me, the main thing is operations. How big is your kitchen? What are you going to do? What are you going to serve? What what is the feasibility? How many number of packs, number of people do you get in, you need into a restaurant at any one time? Or how many turnovers you need to have in order to make your business successful or make it feasible? Because if you if you do a restaurant with a kitchen that takes up two thirds of your restaurant kitchen and you've only got tables for ten people, you ain't gonna survive, you know. Yeah. So that 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 is usually the first part of the design, and you sh- and then in that part, actually, the, ch- the design of a table and chair is actually very interesting. It's actually very important. The kind of chair, it's not about height; it's even the type of design. Like for example, there was one restaurant we were called on to do before. It was actually an existing restaurant. Uh, we were actually asked to come and redo it, relook at it. So the client, after running for a year or so, uh, they were doing quite successful, but at the same time, they wanted to increase their kitchen capacity but when I looked at it I looked at the tables and chairs and I'm like oh my god what are you guys trying to do so can you imagine we actually increased the kitchen by about 30% 
but we still managed to increase the number of chairs inside, number of packs inside. That's because they were using the wrong kind of tables. Like for example, they have tables where, you know, like the old school desk where we had legs on every four ends. If you notice a lot of restaurants now, most restaurants, the legs are in the centre. There's a reason for that. I mean, people think, hey, let's make it look cool and let's look the old school tables. At the end. But when you have tables at the end, it's not easy to join. And when you want to pull another chair across to squeeze in, you can't do that. So actually, the, the, and the table, the way, the, the way, the sh- way it's shaped, the, the, how, how, or the size of it, that also makes a difference. So we have to be very, there's actually certain guidelines and rules on table sizes, how you need to put it together. So you need to understand that, how tables are put together, how people are going to sit in. And for example, like um, some restaurants, they just like think, hey, let's have a lot of uh, four-seat tables. They design, a tab- they design tables which are, can fit four people. But just think, we are not Hong Kong, we are not Japan. You know, Hong Kong and Japan people were more than happy to share a table by you, you know. But in Malaysia, people, are, our, our... Culture, we, are, we have our bubbles. Our bubbles are not as close as Japan or Hong Kong. And so we have, I was in Hong Kong before we did some cafes there. In Hong Kong, the cafe tables are 500 by 500. Malaysia, 600 by 600. In Japan, they were 400 by 400. You know, people, wow. people's personal places, it's a lot, it's a lot. Because the place is so, com- so packed. Everyone's used to being so close. So when you design a restaurant that has a lot of four-seater tables, but most people come in, you know, come dating and stuff, they come with two, that's it. So you've got a table for four. But once two people sit in it or one person sit in it, that's it, man. You've lost one table. Right. You've lost four packs just for that. And you're only going to make money from that one table. So in a business point of view, they'll say like, heck, one table only spends, one person's only going to spend, to say, 34 ringgit. But by right, that table is designed to have one sitting, 120 ringgit, you know. So so when you know there's a lot of these uh, individual people coming in, then you have to be smart. You have to have a few smaller tables. Or what I like to do is I like to do a lot of banquet seats because banquet seats, you can actually adjust. If it's just one person, fine. You just push it aside. Let a couple sit together, but it, then you can actually stack the others and then join it together so you can have more sitting. So the kind of sitting also is important because that actually, to me, that's the most important, the number of packs in the restaurant. It has to work. Then, of course, everything else is the flow, how the service flow, how the, whether, whether the waiter or, or server can come to you, has enough space for them to place, there's enough uh, POS stations, waiting stations, because that's the other thing that a lot of, I'm sure annoy a lot of people when you make an order and... It takes them like forever to even place the order, and sometimes they forget the order. They'll, I mean, there's still a lot. Of, we're not, although there are a lot of restaurants now we're doing things on iPad. Many of them still go back to the POS, the point of sales on the wall. So in, even the location of the point of sales, all that is actually very important. People think it's very, it's, uh, it's not. It, they, a lot of designers and I think a lot of uh, new restaurant owners think it's all to do with the look and feel. Actually, it's not. Look and feel is important, yes, but that's the secondary part. If you can't get the first operations numbers correct don't even bother starting the business, you know. Right. So, and that's why when I talk to restaurants, when I talk to clients, I think that's why they find me a bit different. And I mean, I'm not, I don't think I'm the only one doing this, but uh, the approach is different. Our approach is from a very business sense. The business has to work. Absolutely. Then, let's talk about how we're going to wow the customers and all that kind of stuff. Because the business doesn't work, let's not even talk to the second part, you know. Amazing. We were talking all about um, the, we, what were we talking about before this? We were talking about many, many different things about design. Uh, We had quite a bit of a break there, having a bit of a chat and a laugh before we got into this session. Um, But we did agree that we were going to talk about the future of design in restaurants at F&B. Tell us, Ramesh, (laughs) what is your take on that? Okay, future. Okay, uh, again, I think there are two aspects looking at it. Let's talk about about design first, okay? Now, uh, like you said... uh, Relations being pretentious and all that. I mean, we're talking about the higher level of restaurants and cafes. So, 
gone are the days where a simple restaurant would probably do it. Now everyone's trying to outdo themselves by, you know, making themselves more Instagrammable, finer details, finer designs, something to look at, something new to look at. So that is still the pooling point at the moment. Not so much the food. Food is important, but I think the look also plays a very big role now. But I suppose what happens if everyone's, and everyone seems to be jumping into that same bandwagon, everyone's trying to outdo each other, everyone's trying to become Instagrammable. So we were talking about what happens when we've hit tipping point, when we've hit critical mass of good design. Just say every restaurant out there looks amazingly Instagrammable and just say we've been to all those restaurants, we've taken all our photos, what do we do next? How do we choose? So I think that's when, when it comes to that point, uh, almost like what's happening to hospitality now, hotels, everyone's going crazy and trying to outdo themselves. What really has to set them apart from each other is basically the food and finally service. So I think that it'll come back to that. So I think for those who are planning on doing your own restaurants, uh, yes, design is important, how you do it and so forth. The look and feel has to be something unique. But I think you should never discount the f- service and your food itself. That's the main product. I mean, almost like hotels. I mean, what's the main, what's the main, uh, what are hotels actually selling? Actually, hotels are selling the beds, the rooms. But a lot of hotels nowadays have gone crazy. They've gone K-wired. They've started whacking out their lobbies and stuff like that. Like, it looks fantastic. But their rooms are crap, <laughs> you know? But that's the main product. So again, a restaurant, what's the main product of the restaurant? It's the food. And the food, unless you're self-service, it's a, it's a service industry. The service has to come together with the food. And of course, the look and feel complements it. So that's in terms of a design point of view. Uh, the other aspect that's happening now is, of course, as we all know in our beloved country, costs of everything is going up due to powers that be. And uh, with that, I mean, a restaurant, again, as a business, yes, when we uh, money comes in, money also goes out. Yes. Uh, and a lot of my clients now are complaining about cost of food is going up. The ingredients are going up. So when you do a restaurant, it's not just about uh, paying salaries. Salaries, of course, are going up because people are having a hard time surviving. So they are asking for higher salaries. Your ingredients are going up. And on top of that, you also have to pay rent. (laughs) Unless it's your own shop. You know, you have to pay rent to either a mall or a freestanding shop. So in that point of view, I suppose uh, the easiest way to reduce costs or reduce the capital is to have smaller restaurants. And I think if you look at what's happening now and a lot of new places coming up, you get a lot of these little small quaint, almost like what's happening in Hong Kong and Japan where real estate prices are phenomenally high. Most of the top restaurants there are actually very, these small little holes in the wall, you know. And I think uh, slowly we're probably going to, even even in malls, I used to do a lot of work with malls, and I think even Mao malls, they're actually cutting up their lots into smaller, smaller little chunks. So uh, in that sense, you've got a smaller footprint. You don't have to spend so much. And the good thing is you don't have to think so much about what to do with it, but then you've got to really make sure that whatever you sell has a, really big impact in terms of quality of food and so forth. I mean, the bigger restaurants, I suppose it still has a market because at the end of the day, Malaysians, we like to party. We like to have events. That's the other thing. A lot, the, other, the other end of the scale, so you have the small ones where basically people go to stuff like that. And if they're small enough, you can afford to be a little, you know, you can have to have smaller seats. I, I suppose we, eventually the culture will change. We will probably get used to smaller tables, smaller chairs, a bit more compact. And I think now a lot of people are on the move, on the go. You can concentrate more on take takeaway. So you can still increase your sales, but by having um, uh, trying to push out more things that people can grab and go. And then uh, for those who want to sit and eat, uh, to a certain extent, that's a say, strategy we do for some cafes. We try to not make them so comfortable. So we get them out of the restaurant fast enough. You know, if you look like uh, Chinese chap fans restaurant stuff, you want people want to just come eat, get out, you know. So we can also look into that. But on the other end of the scale, uh, the events and stuff, we're also doing a lot of clients now who actually need to have large restaurants. Because the other thing that uh, 
because we still have a lot of big corporations in Malaysia. And I've done a few clients, few restaurant clients, where one of the one of the problems, one, one, what's lacking in KL actually, is there are very few venues that can carry large capacities. Like you're talking about the 300, 400 kind of packs. Very, very few. So we have done actually one or two restaurants. And, and because they are, can achieve that number, they grab almost everything on that level. So don't say you, you do big, you can't make money. You can, but you need to understand what your target audience is. So, and, uh, and even our mid-sized restaurants, uh, one of the things we do also in terms of is, yes, we cater for the walk-ins, but one of the major um, uh, uh, incomes for restaurants, actually if you go big enough, is actually events. That's actually where a lot of money comes from. You push events. You know, people come in, book a place for a wedding, book a place for uh, for birthday parties and stuff. And you make your place, you design your place such a way that actually it's an amazing place to have an event. And again, and that also sells, you know. And then, and then the thing about Instagram also is about how you put a signage. So you have to make sure, it's not just about designing details, it's about placing your brand. So when people take a photo themselves or selfie of themselves, you've got the restaurant name of the restaurant behind you. So every picture they take. That's why actually branding is important. There's... Why do people put... I mean, those days, people used to put a, their tag on their... You know, just they put the name of the restaurant on the, on the, on the napkin and so forth. It was to show you that. But then, uh, one, then they stopped. But now it's coming back again. You know why? Because people now love to take pictures of their food. So when you take a photo of the food, you want the name of the restaurant to also slip in. So indirectly, they're doing the advertising for you. Lah. So I think it's... Uh, I don't know. The future, the future in terms of cost looks... Bit scary. Things are going up, but I think it will. I I feel I'm a bit optimistic because I think it will probably create another uh, generation of these small little queen restaurants and stuff, which we see a lot in in uh, the more developed, populated countries in Asia. I think that that's actually quite interesting, uh, Near my place, uh, there's a, there's a restaurant. It's just, it's a small little hole in the literal hole in the wall in Section 17. It's a Thai street food. It actually started off as a supplier. Thai, they're run by Thais. They basically supply food to Thai restaurants. But they started having a few tables and chairs and their staff started to eat and started opening to a few people to eat. Next thing you know, there's a queue developing there. Everyone goes there because the food is fantastic. I mean, I mean, it doesn't look that great, the place. But I'm just thinking, you know, if your food, like I said, come back to that. If your food, and that place has zero service, okay? So if your food is fantastic, you know, and, you've, and price point is just right, people will come. So just imagine if your food was fantastic, your service is on point and your design looks a bit cool. Got it, made man. Done deal. <laughs> <laughs> pretty much, pretty much. You just gave me loads of ideas there. Thank you so much for sharing all this stuff with us. Um, give us one or two anecdotes for would-be entrepreneurs out there, um, you know, based on your entire experience in, in developing whatever it is that you've done so far. Uh... <laughs> uh. <laughs> no, no, no worries. Take your time. Take your time. Come to me. No, no, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking of something actually helpful. <laughs> Come to me, it's not one of them. Cost, cost. About money. It's all about money. No, it's not about that. No, it's not about money. Money is one thing. Uh, actually, the main thing about rest. Can, can I just talk? Let's just go. Uh, money is one thing. Yes, you must have money. Uh, but actually, the main, the reason why we didn't, I mean, like I said, I told my wife and I actually wanted because my wife and her family cooks, they bake and all that kind of stuff. So we thought, hey, if you can cook, why not do a restaurant and all that kind of thing? That's what people always say. But actually, it's not as easy as that because the biggest problem in the F&B industry is actually resource staffing. 
you know, unless you're a family-run business, and there's a few family-run business out there that's actually the whole family's in it, then it's okay. But of course, barring the family fights and feuds, and I mean, there'll still be some issue out there, but most restaurants, the biggest problem is the restaurant owner sometimes is not the chef. Mm. So the restaurant is the guy, the restaurant owner is the person that has the idea, the dream, the target, the ideals, and the money. So he says, hey, I want to do this restaurant. First thing you need, I need to get a chef. The chef is a salaried person. It's a hired person. So some people take it upon themselves to make the chef a partner and all that kind of stuff to lock them in. But uh, the FMB industry is a very, uh, what's the word for it? Uh? It's a very scary industry. Uh, everyone jumps at the slightest. When you give someone 50 bucks more, he'll jump to you. And, uh, and it's, a very no- it's, a, it's a notorious industry where people pinch from each other. All the chefs come from restaurants, uh, from big hotels. And if you run a restaurant that's doing well, you can be almost assured there'll be competitor restaurant owners coming to your restaurant to check you out and making an offer to your staff as well. Mm. Good stuff. So it's actually, it's a, it's a jungle. It's a very scary out there, you know. So, and, that is, and I've had a, quite a few clients where the restaurant basically bellied up because they lost their chef. Because mm. everything depends on the chef. And the thing is this, and if you don't, and sometimes, you know, I've had new, new restaurants, they open up, the first day of opening or first week of opening, suddenly their barista doesn't show up, their key chef decides to just not come to work and stuff. You know, they are, these are real problems that you have. And I've seen it happen right before me. And I'm telling my wife, it's like, oh my God, you know, it's, it's, actually, it's actually very scary. It's not, it's not a, you know, just imagine, okay, we talked about the food. Yes, you can have fantastic food. You can have fantastic service. You've got money to, or you can do fantastic, you've got a damn good design, you can fantastic design, you've got a kick-ass location. Suddenly your staff don't turn up. Mm. Can you imagine? And, and, and actually, this is not a one-off. It's actually a very common problem. That's why we've gone to a lot of restaurants where we complain, hey, service is so slow and stuff like that. But actually, if you find out what really happened, most of the time it's because the staff, staff didn't show up. They just disappeared. They just right. went MIA, you know? Right. And a lot of staff are not really local. They're also foreign staff because of cost of labor and all that kind of stuff. And there's a whole set of uh, different problems. So actually, FMB, although it might sound owning a restaurant is glamorous, is actually a lot of hard work and it's got no ends of potential problems. Anything that can go wrong will go wrong and will possibly <laughs> go wrong. So actually, it's a quite a scary industry. So if you ask me advice for people when you're opening a restaurant, my advice would be really, really think hard about think it. Think through. <laughs> think really, really think it through. Are you sure you want to do this, you know? Unless it's a really small setup where you're running it on your own. Uh, it's okay. I mean, I have gone, I've got one client now uh, quite cool quite a restaurant bar kind of thing but that's okay because the wife his wife is the chef so obviously she's not going to run away <laughs> yeah. and, and, the, and the guy man, the chap manning the bar is the brother and he also mans the place in the bar so it's okay it's a, it's a family run business so the core team is family never going to run away then the staff of course there's a regular turnover but the problem happens when the core staff the core key people are the ones that disappear or get pinched uh, that's, that's actually very scary amazing amazing and it happens a lot okay I, so I hear so I hear thank you so much Ramesh for being with us um, that was it uh, our insights for today from um, uh, Ramesh session of session design mm-hmm.